Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. I'm Lenny Goldberg. Thank you for joining me today. Let's start off with some news from Israel. Here's a headline in last week's Jerusalem Post. And this is typical of what's running in the headlines ever since Ben Gvir and Smotrich have become uh, ministers. Former Israeli police officers plead that Netanyahu, he must sack Itamar Ben Gvir. 40 retired Israeli police officers, including former police chiefs, criticized Ben Gvir's conduct and warned he could ignite another intifada. And the article goes on how these 40 former senior police officers gathered together for a special discussion to protest National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir, whose conduct is causing the police to break apart while a hostile takeover is being carried out. They say that Ben-Gvir is acting contrary to his authority. He's involved in giving operational instructions to the commanders. He's not supposed to do that. Another example, he doesn't understand, like in the preparation for Ramadan, irresponsible instructions were given that could ignite a new intifada and are based on a basic lack of understanding about the situation in Jerusalem. So they got these retired officers telling us that Ben Gvir is not fit, unlike they who are experts in this kind of stuff. Ben Gvir is a novice. He's in over his head. He doesn't know what he's doing. And that's how they always delegitimize people who come to power who they don't want. That is, they bring on these experts to explain to us how the person isn't fit. Like when the Hunter Biden laptop was discovered, they had all these ex-CIA and FBI experts telling us how it's clear that that laptop is Russian disinformation. And when Trump was the president, they would parade in front of us all these psychiatrists to tell us how he's unfit, he's unstable to be the president. So here they found 40 retired Israel police officers, including police chiefs, and they're criticizing Ben Gvir's conduct. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard to really make a change in Israel. Because even if you get that portfolio, even if somebody you think is ideal to be the prime minister becomes prime minister, it's still hard to make a change because you're really just one person and you're fighting against a whole entrenched establishment that's already in place and they've been in place for years. And they're the ones who dictate the tone. If you read David Friedman's book called Sledgehammer, now David Friedman was the former U.S. ambassador to Israel. And he explains in this book how he had to battle the State Department for everything. It didn't matter that he, as the U.S. ambassador to Israel and President Trump himself, they were all for moving the embassy to Jerusalem. It was still a battle every inch of the way to get anything done. He had to be a sledgehammer. That's the name of the book. I'm going to read a little bit of what he writes here in his chapter, Battling the State Department. So this is David Friedman, former ambassador to the U.N., trying to get things done. He says like this, I had consultations within the State Department, and I'm glad for that, but not for the reason you might expect. The most valuable thing I learned was not about Israel or the Middle East, but about the self-satisfied American bureaucracy. It gave me great insight into the deep state and the entrenched thinking that drove the process without regard to which administration was in power. So he's saying it doesn't matter what administration happened to be in power because that State Department has their point of view and they're not moving from it. And he continues, from then on, I would have to fight against this establishment for every big win we had, moving the embassy, resetting policy, and moving towards peace. So David Friedman is saying here that 
it doesn't matter which administration is in power. The State Department is running the show. And most of the book is how he has to fight them on every move. Now, the Secretary of State of the Trump administration was Rex Tillerson. And Tillerson said about Friedman, well, he's not my ambassador. So David Friedman says in his book, I processed that information fairly quickly. It looked like the State Department considered me a lightweight, easy enough to ignore. I would have to find a way to change that and work around Tillerson. So they're doing to him what they're doing to Itamar and Smotrich. They're lightweights. They don't understand what we know. They're new on the scene. What do they know, those whippersnappers? And just as another example of how they try to control David Friedman, he was invited to the Kotel on Yom Yerushalayim. It was Jerusalem Day, and he was going to meet the president and the prime minister. It was the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem. And he was invited, and he accepted the invitation. So he writes like this. About two hours before we were able to take the five-minute drive from the King David Hotel to Yaffa Gate, that's where the ceremony was, my phone rang. It was a senior member of Rex Tillerson's staff. And he said like this, Ambassador Friedman, I'm calling from the State Department. We are calling to advise you not, not to attend the Jerusalem Day event that you were planning to go to. So Friedman says, why shouldn't I go? I already accepted an invitation by the Prime Minister. Well, we'll just chalk that up to your inexperience. Jerusalem Day is very controversial and no ambassador to Israel has ever attended a ceremony in 50 years. David Friedman responds, I don't think it's controversial. Before 1967, the Western Wall was a Jordanian parking lot for camels and donkeys. Now it's a beautiful plaza. Why shouldn't I want to celebrate that? It's not done, Ambassador. The Palestinians feel differently. If you attend, you could cause controversy, blah, blah, blah. So that was the thinking of the State Department all along. And Ambassador David Friedman has got to fight for every inch. Now, when Trump finally makes the announcement to move the embassy to Jerusalem, and that took a lot of doing because Trump had Tillerson in his ear. Now they have to find a physical place for it. So David Friedman is trying to get that done, all the logistics of getting a building. And he calls Trump from Israel and he says, Mr. President, I need to know when you would like to move the embassy. I assume as soon as possible, but I wanted to confirm. So President Trump says, David, I would do it tomorrow. But Rex says it will take many years with the land acquisition, zoning, design, security protocols, etc. He thinks it will take at least 10 years and cost a billion dollars. So Rex Tillerson is in Trump's ear all the time. And he's telling Trump it's not practical. Friedman's over in Israel trying to get this thing done. So what does David Friedman say? Mr. President, I can open an embassy in three months for $150,000. We already have a great site. It meets all of the security requirements and it's already performing some embassy functions. I just need some money to build a few offices and some new plaques. I really don't think that more than $150,000 is needed to support the opening. So Trump says, David, that's incredible. When do you want to open it? So Friedman answers, I would recommend on May 14th, 2018. It's the 70th anniversary of Israel's independence. So Trump says, that sounds great. Listen, spend up to $500,000. Let's make it really nice. So you see how difficult it is to make change? That even if the president himself wants to do something, you have this entrenched deep state swamp, whatever you want to call it, that doesn't let it happen. Now, eventually, Pompeo replaced Tillerson as secretary of state, and that made things a lot easier for David Friedman to operate and do what he wanted to do. But it was still a huge challenge. But the point is, even if you have a high position of power, Unless you just do a total clean out 
or drain that swamp totally, you can't get anything done. When Menachem Begin came to power in 1977, he had been in the opposition for 29 years. And when he came into power, they were saying, whoa, what an upheaval. It's a mapach. Finally, something new. Finally, a man of the people. Instead of the Ashkenazi socialist elites like Eshkol and Golda Meir and Rabin running the country, we got one of us, Begin, a man of the people. When he was elected, that was a much bigger upheaval than what we have today. And yet... Begin was a huge disappointment because he kept the same people on board. He didn't clean up. He took Moshe Dayan as his secretary of defense. He took Weitzman as his secretary of state. He kept the same crap in there. So of course there was no real upheaval when Begin came to power. The opposite. He was the one who signed Camp David to retreat from the Sinai. He was the one who dismantled settlements in Yamit and set a precedent for the evacuation of settlements in Judea and Samaria. So bringing it up to the present, this new government is being attacked nonstop and they will try to delegitimize the Ben Gvirs and the Smotriches at every turn. And of course, they have the media as their megaphone to do so. And so headline after headline is to incite against these extremists who suddenly have the power. And it's not just Ben Gvir and Smotrich. It's all their helpers and the other members of Knesset on their lists. If you walk around the Knesset these days, you see all these guys with long payists they look like they walked out of the settlement Yitzhar. And that drives the leftists nuts because when they see that, they're petrified because it means to them that maybe the state will take on a more Jewish character. That's why they fear the judicial reforms because it weakens their Hellenist control of the country and it hands it back to the people who still have a Pintaliyid. The people still have a Jewish spark. That's why they voted Ben Gvir and Smotruch in and they voted Merits out. Now, just because we got more people with yarmulkes and payas walking around the Knesset halls, it doesn't really mean we're getting close to having a Jewish state. Don't be under any illusions. It's not happening. They're not going to let it happen. But that's what we really should be striving for. What we want in Israel today, the fat and the powerful establishment there will never let it happen. Because what really has to happen in Israel, it's not merely a political change, but it's a redoing of society. What has to be done is the remaking of Israel into a Jewish state. What has to be done is to remake the values of the state into Jewish values, to create a new generation of Jews, Jewish Jews, and the Israeli swamp and the feudal barons and the Hellenists and all that mixed multitude in Erevrav that you see demonstrating now, they're the entrenched ones and they want to stay in power forever. And by the way, that's why they go crazy against these judicial reforms. We see fear just oozing out of their pores, their viciousness, and they'll stop at nothing. These are really the same people, and this is the same mindset that murdered Jews on the Alta Lena, that stole the Yemenite Jews, because they were always looking to keep their power. That's the face of the Israeli left. And then you have those leftist freaks who cry over the vandalism in Khawara, but couldn't care less if Jews are murdered in Khawara. And you can ask, are they the Erev Rav? Well, what is Erev Rav? Well, this past Shabbat, we read Parshat Kitisa. It's the Parshat of the Golden Calf. And we know that the sin of the Golden Calf was instigated by the Erevrav, the mixed multitude. So who is the Erevrav? Well, according to Jewish tradition, there were local Egyptians and other foreigners who aligned themselves with the Israelites. They joined the Jews with impure motives when they left Egypt. Literally, Erevrav is a mix of nationalities, Erev, which means mix, a mixture. Rav means a lot. 
Erev Rav. Anyway, the verse says in Exodus 12, verse 38, Vegama Erev Rav ala itam, which means, and the Erev Rav also went up with them, that is from Egypt. Anyway, the Erev Rav, they weren't only involved in the golden calf episode, but they were involved in other incidents in the desert where the people questioned Moses and his laws. Now, in Kabbalistic books and Messianic literature, it talks of how the Erev Rav, they'll continue to impede the children of Israel in the future as well. According to the Gonmi Vilna, in his book, Kolator, he says that the final Messianic battle, it'll be an all-out war against an unexpected threat. Who is that threat? The Erev Rav. They're coming from inside you. They're like a fifth column. And they are the most serious impediment to the rejection, according to the Gra. Now, I don't want to go into the whole mystical aspects of it, but it's very likely that these Jewish groups who oppose Israel, you know, like J Street, like the New Israel Fund, who are critical of the Torah and work against Israel's very existence in these times of Messiah, well, that's the trait of the Erev Rav. Now, it says in Kolator that there's no neutral ground here. The Gras says that anyone who does not actively take part in battling the Erev Rav, he's essentially joining their side. That's his words exactly. So you can ask, how do I battle the Erev Rav? Well, in our Pasha, Pasha Kitisa, which we just read, the Pasha of the Golden Calf, we see three different methods how to deal with it. You have the method of Aaron, the priest. You have the method of Chor and that of Moses. Now, most people know who Aaron and Moses were, but who was Chor? Well, if you remember, in the war against Amalek, it was Chor and Aaron who were holding up Moses' hands in that war. Chor was a huge tzaddik of that generation, but suddenly, you don't hear from him anymore. He kind of just disappears. You might have heard of his grandson, Bitzalel, the son of Uri, the son of Chor. But what happened to Chor? Well, when the Jewish people, led by the Erev Rav, insisted on building that golden calf, Chor, he protested. He said, hey, this is idol worship. You can't do that. And he was murdered. And this is brought down in the Midrashim. And they learned it out from a verse inside this golden calf story. It says that Aaron took the earrings of the women and he fashioned it into the shape of a calf. And then it says in chapter 32, verse 5, And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf. Now in Hebrew, how do you say he built an altar? That means the pshat, that he built an altar before him. But you can also read it like this. And he understood from the slaughtered one in front of him. That he saw and he understood from the slaughtered one in front of him, what did he see? He saw Chor slain, laying there dead. And he realized that if he protests against the people, he will suffer the same fate as Chor. The people will murder him. So what does he do? We see what he does. He acquiesces to them. He participates with building of the golden calf. And by the way, he's going to get punished for that severely. Okay, what happens then? Moses descends from the mountain with the two tablets. He sees the people dancing and running wild at the calf. His anger burns. And he says, Mila Shemelai, who is for the Lord? Let him come to me. And the Levites rally to him and they go through the camp and they kill about 3,000 people. Now, when you think about it, 3,000 isn't that much. It's not everybody. I thought everybody was doing it. But that's what the Erev Rav is. There are a few, but they make a lot of noise. More than their numbers, they know how to influence. And the Gonbi Milner says that they use Achizate Nayim, which literally means 
optical illusions, meaning that they seem like a lot all the time because they work through disinformation and they're in high positions, but they're actually in numbers, a small minority. You see here, there were only 3,000 of them. So what comes out of all this? We saw three ways to deal with the Erevrav. You have the method of Chor. He protested and he was killed for it. He sanctified his life in Kiddush Hashem. You have Aaron who gave in to them because he saw what they did to Chor. And then you have the way of Moses who took the tribe of Levi and he whacked them. Now, why didn't Chor and Aaron do what Moses did? They could have rallied up the Levites to squash the initiate of the golden calf of the Erevrav. But like we said, the Erevrav always seems to be a lot more than they are. Achizat Einayim. Chor and Aaron overestimated their strength. There were a lot less of them than they thought. Just like today, you hear all the noise of the left. You think everybody thinks that way. If you just look at the mainstream news, you think that woke is the norm or whatever narrative they're pushing. In the meantime, the majority of the people, they don't agree with this stuff. But the Erevrav uses achizat enayim, as we said. They make it seem like they're the normal ones. They're the mainstream. And in the meantime, the silent majority is afraid to speak up. Okay, so that takes care of the Erevrav. Now let's go on in our Pasha towards the end of it. And we'll see how to deal with another enemy from within. The Arab enemy amongst us. Okay, so what's going on in Exodus chapter 34? The Jews are about to enter the land of Israel to fight the seven Canaanite nations. And if it wasn't for the sin of the spies, they would have went right in. They wouldn't have to wait 40 years. So they're preparing themselves to enter. And the Torah now gives instruction and the following warnings. In chapter 34, verse 12, it says like this in the Torah, Be very careful with what I am instructing you today. I will drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Chivites, the Parasites, I'm kidding, the Prizim, the Hittites, the Evusites before you, be careful not to make a treaty with the people who live in the land where you are coming, since they will be a fatal trap to you. Okay, that looks like a typical verse about throwing out the Canaanites. But listen to what the great commentator, the Obarbanel, says about this. This is what he says. Why does the verse say, God will drive out the seven nations? Because if God is driving them out, who are you to make a covenant with them? It's inappropriate. God drives them out. And you're going to make peace with them? That's ungrateful. That's like after the Six-Day War. Yeah, we'll give away Yehuda and Shemron. No. Who are we to give it away after Hashem grants us this unbelievable miracle? But now the Abarbanel gets to the most important part of the commentary. He says like this. The other reason you are not to forge a covenant with them is because it won't work. After all, Israel has taken their land. So they'll always hold that against you. They see themselves as the indigenous ones. That's why the verse says in chapter 34, verse 12, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land that you are coming to. There will be a snare for you. What does it mean the land that you are coming to? Why does it have to say the land that you are coming to? Of course you're coming to the land, but that's the point. You're coming to a place that people live there already. You're coming against them. They're already there. That's the way Hashem set it up. You'll always be a thief in their eyes. And so how can a covenant of friendship possibly work? On the contrary, the Abominal says, there will be a fatal trap to you. That's how the verse ends. So how awesome are these words of the Abominal? When another nation sees you as a conqueror, they'll always resent you. Because they're saying, we were here, we're indigenous, you conquered it from us. That's the property of the seven nations. That's their trait. And that's exactly what the Arabs in Israel represents. He's not just any foreign nation that you can make some agreement with him. 
You can apply Jewish law, that is to follow the seven Noahide laws, taxes and servitude. He'll never come to terms with that because he claims ownership to the land. He has to hate you. Yeah, you can conquer it from him for a while and rule over him, but at the end of the day, he'll resent you because he sees the land as belonging to him. We're not talking about some Chinaman or some Swede who wants to live in Israel. He doesn't believe the land is his, so he can accept the Jewish state. He doesn't feel indigenous. He doesn't claim the land is his. The Arab does. He has that trait of the seven nations. He sees us as thieves. And of course, that's the first Rashi in the Torah that the nations of the world will say, hey, you're thieves. You took the land of the seven nations. And that's why the Arab has to go. Because if he doesn't go, we're going to go. What an Abarbanel. Wow. Anyway, that's it for me. That's uh, Schlockrock, the great Lenny Solomon. Schlockrock.com to hear more of him. And if you want to hear more of me, you can tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg Bible Classes. It's a podcast on Spotify. If you want to learn the Bible the proper way with Jewish sources, nice and simple and to the point, turn into Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. And God willing, I'll be back next week for some more. get the inside news on Israel. At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. 
Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Morris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.